Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brother of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Or is it written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain? Is it for oxen that, that God's concern? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In, this, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not made not but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if I if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right of the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To the, those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's continue praying. Father, we thank you for this word as it was just read, and that we ask for your spirit to accompany the preaching of your word, that hearts may be encouraged and comforted, that hearts may be 
convicted and challenged that you may do a spiritual work among your people, all for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Old church, this morning we are stepping right back into a series in 1 Corinthians that we had paused this last spring. We're going to pick up right where we left off, left off in chapter 9. But I think because of such a, a long hiatus, it's worth giving a, a bit of a, a, of a recap. You know, you know, just to help you kind of orient yourself in this book. Because, you know, jumping right into chapter 9, it's like opening up a book right in the middle and to start reading or to... You know, to walk into a movie halfway through and to start watching. It's so confusing if you don't have the previous context. And so that's why I think it's worth giving a high-level summary of what we've previously covered. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is the one who wrote this letter uh, to the church in Corinth, a church that he himself founded years earlier. And it is a church comprised of Gentile believers. And that's important to, to remember these are those that were converted out of a pagan background where they had been accustomed previously to worshiping in pagan temples that, that were dedicated to Roman gods and goddesses. That was the lifestyle that they were coming out of. Now, the tone of this letter he writes them is a tone of stern rebuke. We've already seen uh, this, this sense coming across that he's rebuking them. But at the same time, we've noticed how this is a loving rebuke coming from a loving, concerned father. And so Paul had previously received a letter from the Corinthians telling him about these factions, these divisions that were growing up and developing among them, each claiming to their allegiance to this or that leader in the church in Corinth or just in the, in the church at large. Uh, and we saw how these Corinthians are very knowledgeable and spiritually gifted. But it's their advanced knowledge and their spectacular gifts that puffed up their pride and made it so difficult for them to work out their disagreements between each other on how Christians ought to behave. Because each thought that they knew better than the other. So in chapter 8, Paul addresses one of these many ethical disagreements between uh, the, these factions in the church. This, a disagreement that was threatening the church's unity. And so we saw how this was a matter that was uh, raised by the Corinthians themselves in that previous letter they sent. And it all had to do with the ethics of eating food that had been previously offered up to idols in one of those pagan temples. As we mentioned before, there are three possible scenarios where this issue might have come up. And Paul says that one of those scenarios is strictly prohibited for Christians. You can't go there. And that's a scenario where you are actually eating this food in a temple, in a religious feast that was an extension of the idol worship that happens there in the temple. And he's going to say later on in chapter 10 that that is off limits. That is flat out idolatry for any Christian. But there are two other scenarios where Paul would say that it is permissible for a Christian to eat this kind of food that had been previously offered to idols. Uh, one is where you're purchasing it from the meat market that is located uh, uh, nearby uh, one of the local temples. And the, the meat was supplied from the sacrifices at the temple. And if you are buying it there, you're consuming it at home, if you can do that with a good conscience, then, then you, can, you can eat that. Uh, the other scenario is where you are eating the food 
in the idol's temple, so you're in the temple, but you're, it's not part of the worship uh, service, if you will, of the, of the, uh, of the temple. It's just in a non-idolatrous social setting. Uh, temples, you have to understand, back then, they basically served as public dining halls. So it's like for us today, if we're going to go out to eat at a restaurant, we're going to go to a public restaurant, you know, we have plenty to choose from. In those days, where they would go to eat out, they would eat out at the temple. And so that is another scenario. And, and, and now there were believers, there were some believers in the church in Corinth who knew that, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a, a scenario that they could eat there with a clean conscience. And, and, and Paul would say, yeah, I agree. That in both of those latter two scenarios, you could do that. You can eat it with a clean conscience. But the problem is that not everyone in the church of Corinth held that view. And so some felt very strongly that eating food that had been offered up to idols, whether you're just eating it at home or you're eating it in that you know, non-idolatrous setting in the temple, it doesn't matter. If that food had been associated with idol worship, then you eating it associates you with that idolatry. Some would say you can't eat any of that. It was just considered ethically wrong for Christians within a certain faction in the church. But like I said, on the other side, there were those believers who knew that food is just food. And those, those idols aren't real. And so they had no problem eating this kind of meat in those particular scenarios. And they were going to defend their rights against all of these legalistic Christians who were judging them and condemning them for eating food that they knew was okay to eat. That was what was going on here. Now, Paul's response is to urge those, those who, who had a clean conscience eating meat at home or in the non-idolatrous setting, his response is to urge them to care more about building up others and advancing the gospel instead of caring so much about your rights, about you know, what you're free to do as a Christian. And remember, he agrees that you can't eat the meat in those latter two scenarios, but unlike those who are just so focused on protecting their rights, Paul is willing to lay down his rights if the free exercise of it negatively affects other people. So listen how he ends chapter 8 in verse 13. He says this, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So the moral calculus that Paul used to make his ethical decisions is so different compared to the way that decisions are typically made in our day. You see, we live right now in a culture that is so adamant about protecting our rights, preserving our freedoms. You know, for many people, the ethical framework that they operate out of essentially says, I can do whatever I want as long as it's within my rights. And a Christian might add to that, and as long as it's not a sin, as long as it doesn't violate scripture, then, hey, I can do what I want. You can't judge me. That's, that's the primary concern that is often driving people's actions and driving their decisions. But I, what I want you to see this morning is how that falls short of a truly Christian ethic. What Paul taught 
and what he modeled in his life in ministry is not an ethic of rights and freedoms, but an ethic of love and missions. He operated out of the framework that says, I will do whatever it takes to build up others, to advance the gospel, to remove any obstacle in the path of someone coming to know Jesus. I'll do what it takes, even at the cost of denying myself, even at the cost of laying aside one of my rights, I'll do it for the gospel. I will become all things to all people that by all means I may save some. That's how the Apostle Paul made his decisions and how he calculated what was right or wrong in this or that situation. So let me, let me, let me walk us through chapter 9, uh, which is essentially Paul giving his readers a practical example of how uh, he does his own ethical decision-making. And he's going to point to a prior decision that he had made while he was living among them when he had planted the church. Namely, when he had first arrived in Corinth, to plant the church, he refrained from exercising his right as an apostle to receive financial material support from the Corinthians. And so he's going to make three arguments here in this chapter. And if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline. I've listed out the three arguments he's going to make. First, he's going to argue that a Christian's rights should be respected. Second, a Christian's rights can be laid aside. And third, a Christian's mission calls for adaptability and self-control. All right, so let's first consider that, that initial argument that a Christian's rights should be respected. And that's what he emphasizes for us in verses 1 all the way to verse 14. And I hope you have your Bibles in front of you, that you're following along. We're going to be making arguments out of the Scriptures, and I, I want you guys to see it there. Now, it seems strange that this would be his first point since his entire point of the chapter is to explain why we should sometimes forego the, uh, those rights. So why would he spend 14 verses defending our rights? Well, if you think about it, it does make sense. Like if I refuse to enjoy something, it's only considered a selfless sacrifice if I deserve that something in the first place. So if I were to say, hey, I, I'm going to lay aside my right to take your car for a joyride, you're going to be like, okay, sure. Uh, yeah, that, that was never really your right in the first place. I didn't give you permission to do that. So it's, it's, you, know, you, you understand that it's only when I actually deserve something by rights, only then does the laying aside of it look like love. So that's why he has to, to emphasize that there is a right that he has. So uh, Paul's point, of course, is he is going to, uh, his point is to present his refusal of their support as an example of this loving Christian ethic he's promoting. But again, the example only works if he deserves their support, if it was his right in the first place. So he had to insist that, he had, and he had to insist this, that it was his right because there were some in the church questioning Paul's authority as an apostle. So there are two things kind of going on. One is he had to make his overall point about his example of laying down his rights, but also he was addressing some who were, who were doubting him and were criticizing him, questioning whether he generally was an apostle of the Lord. 
Because apparently his decision when he first arrived not to accept their support and his decision instead to work for a living led some to question whether he really is an apostle or not. Because other apostles, other teachers that came after him, they were more than willing to accept their support. They had no problem exercising their apostolic rights. So what's wrong with Paul? How come he refused? Maybe, maybe he actually wasn't an apostle when he showed up. And so that's why some are questioning. So that's why, of course, in verse 1, he has to assert his apostleship with that rhetorical question, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? So you see here two marks of true apostleship are that one, you've seen the risen Lord Jesus, which Paul, of course, did on the road to, the, on the road to Damascus. And second, you have been sent by Christ Jesus to establish new churches in unreached uh, new regions. And so in those, both those cases, Paul qualifies. And that's why Paul says in verse 2, that even if others are going to doubt my apostleship, you Corinthians, of all people, should not doubt it since your very existence as a church authenticates my ap- apostleship. That's why he says, you are the seal of my apostleship. And then in verse 3, he begins his defense. Now again, He's not actually defending his rights. Uh, he's not defending his actions, his refusal to exercise his apostolic rights. You actually see him here defending the fact that he has those rights in the first place. So look at the rhetorical questions that he, he, he poses starting in verse 4. He's arguing that he has the right to eat and drink. That is to receive food and drink from the Corinthians as a means of, of their material support. And he also says he has the right to take along a believing wife on his missionary journeys. Now, we know that it's a right that he didn't exercise because he did talk earlier in chapter 7 about his commitment to singleness. He was unmarried, he was celibate, and he was committed to that. And since apparently most of the other apostles were married and had their wives with them, that just reinforced their doubts about Paul's apostleship. How come he's so different? And then in verse 6, Paul says that he has the right to refrain from working for a living. While he was with the Corinthians, ministering among them, he had the right to expect 100% financial and material support from them. Then, in verse 7, he offers three examples from everyday life where you would expect a person to draw sustenance and support from the very fruit of your labor, So he goes on to say, you know, no soldier serves at his own expense. While he's serving as a soldier, he would expect to be fed and housed and clothed by the army. Or, likewise, you would expect a vine dresser to at least taste some of the the, the vine, uh, some of the fruit of his vineyard. Or you would expect a shepherd to at least drink some of the milk from his goats. And so, likewise you would expect a spiritual shepherd to be supported by the very flock that he is spiritually tending. Now, these are some pretty good real-life examples to support his case, but of course, they don't carry the same weight as Scripture. And so that's why in verses 8 to 10, Paul appeals to Scripture, to Old Testament law to support the case. So he quotes, and this is actually Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, he quotes that passage which says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. 
which essentially conveys the point that the worker deserves his wages. You are permitted to enjoy material blessings from the fruits of your labor. So listen to verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Now, in in verse 12, Paul is going to explain the reason why he renounces those rights. But notice how he kind of interrupts himself in verses 13 to 14 with uh, uh, offering two more pieces of supporting evidence. So one comes from the practice of temples, whether you're talking about Jewish or pagan temples, and that is where the priests who made the sacrifices were permitted to share in the sacrificial food. They were able to, 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 to consume that meat. And then the second comes from the words of Jesus himself who said, who, who commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, I know it seems like Paul is belaboring his point. He's trying so hard to argue for a right that in the end, he doesn't even want to exercise. But of course, friends, that is the main point. And unless that is established, such a sacrifice on his part will not be understood as love. So yes, Christian brothers and sisters, You as Christians, you do have rights. According to the gospel that Paul preaches, you are no longer under law. You are free in Christ. You have rights. Your freedom in Christ confers to you certain rights. So for example, you are no longer under the Old Testament food laws, kosher laws. So that means you have the right to eat and drink whatever you want. Or, for example, as one who is subject to governing authorities, you have the right to pursue legal recourse if someone defrauds you. You can take them to court. You have that right. You, those rights need to be recognized. Those rights need to be respected. But here's the question. Do they always need to be exercised? As Paul is going to argue in this very letter, there are times where you should seriously consider foregoing those very rights. There are times that you shouldn't just eat or drink whatever you want. And there are times that you shouldn't take that person to court. We've already seen passages in this series where he addresses those very scenarios. And he is advising, there are times you should lay aside the right. And that leads to our second point. Though a Christian's rights should be respected, a Christian's rights can be laid aside. Because they're not absolute. They shouldn't be the most important factor in your moral calculus. Because there are times, and for good reason, that you should forego your rights. And in verse 12, Paul points to one of those times and gives us one of those reasons where you should lay it aside. Look at verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, 
If the choice to eat, to, to enjoy some right or some privilege of mine, if that bears the risk of impeding the work of the gospel by laying a stumbling block for someone's faith, then man, it is not worth it. He is willing to lay that right aside for the spiritual good of another. Rights are real. Rights should be respected, but they're not the highest good. Paul would say that a Christian right should never be demanded at the expense of Christian mission. A Christian right is real. It is to be respected, but never demanded at the expense of Christian mission. The salvation of someone's soul matters so much more. That's how Paul saw it. You know, he, he knows he's an apostle. He knows he could demand for the Corinthians to financially support him. But he also knows the very people that he's ministering to. He knows their particular context. And in this case, Paul knows that in Corinth, to exercise his apostolic right could put in danger his apostolic mission. So... As one who is free in Christ, he is free to forego his rights in order to advance his mission. Now, you might be wondering, why would receiving financial support from the Corinthian church, why would that have endangered Paul's mission? Why would it have laid a stumbling block for the work of the gospel? Because, you know, we've seen in other instances, if you read through the book of Acts, there are other instances where he is in other cities and Paul does receive support from those he's ministering to. So sometimes he will take what they offer. But then in other cities, like in Corinth, he refuses that right and instead insists on supporting himself, working with his own hands as a tent maker. Now, Unfortunately, Paul doesn't spell out exactly the reason why receiving support from the Corinthians could have endangered his gospel work. But commentators have theorized. They have theorized that it might relate to the problem that he already addressed earlier in chapters 1 and 2, where the Corinthians aside, assigned way too much weight to the eloquence and to the rhetorical skill of, of certain teachers. And so likewise, they also put too much weight on the quote-unquote fees that these teachers charged. So in other words, they had a tendency to assess the worth of a Christian teacher based on how much he charged. If his honorarium is really high, oh man, then he must be a really, really good speaker. You know, but, but if it's just, you know, if, if he's doing it for free, oh man, maybe we can, we can skip that talk. Right? That's, the, that's the kind of thinking that they had. And so Paul hoped to undermine that immature thinking by charging nothing at all. Like, yeah, all right, I'm the Apostle Paul, but I'm not going to charge. And he, he wants to kind of challenge that, that way of, of, of assessing the worth of a teacher. Some other commentators think that his decision actually had more to do with the fact that in that very region of Corinth, there were many itinerant teachers coming and going, uh, representing various pagan philosophies, and they expected a high degree of financial material support coming from their adherents. So since what he did when he showed up in Corinth was he was bringing the gospel there for the very first time, he knew that the gospel message that he was preaching would have been seen as just another new philosophy come to town. Oh, it's another teacher bringing a new philosophy. All right, let's, let's hear him out. So what Paul wanted to do is he wanted to set his gospel apart. 
He wanted to preach the gospel free of charge in order to communicate the freeness of the gospel. It's nothing like the wisdom of the world. It's nothing like these other philosophies because at the heart of the gospel is the message of free grace. And I think that's what Paul has in mind when he talks about boasting in his freedom to offer the gospel free of charge. That, that, that's, that's what he does in verses 15 to 18. Look there. Now, now, in verse 15, he makes it clear. He's not bringing up his rights in order to guilt trip them to start supporting him. No, he doesn't even want it. He goes so far as to say, in verse 15, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. I don't want your money. I don't want your material support, is what he's saying. Now, let's not misinterpret that very statement there, though. Paul's boast, like when he, when he talks about his boast, it's not a boast in comparison to these other teachers who do receive support. He's, he, and he's not, you know, especially when these other apostles, other Christian teachers show up, he's not judging them for exercising their own right. Again, that was his whole point. The last 14 verses saying, you can't judge them. They have a right. This is a right coming from the Lord Jesus himself. It's okay for them to receive financial support. So his boast is not a boast in himself or about how he's so sacrificial compared to all these other teachers. No, his boast is a boast in the freeness of the gospel communicated by the freeness of his gospel ministry. That's what he doesn't want anyone else to take away from him. So Paul says he doesn't boast in the fact that he actually preaches the gospel. I mean, to him, that's like boasting in the fact that you breathe air. Good for you. That's what you're supposed to do. Look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. All right. Now, don't get them wrong. because You just saw that phrase, if not of my own will. Okay, Paul is not suggesting, he's not suggesting that God is forcing him against his will to preach the gospel. I, I don't believe that's what he's saying. He just means that being a gospel preacher is not just one of many career options that a person just so happens to pursue. It's not like you go to a career fair. You're like, huh, you know, I could be an engineer. I could be a doctor. Oh, a gospel preacher. Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll try that one out. That, that's what he's saying. It's not just of your own will, of your own choice out of all these options. In, in Paul's eyes, it's a divine calling. It's a stewardship, as he puts it. And remember, in biblical times, a steward was a household slave who was called by his master to run the household whenever his master was away. And so the steward holds great responsibility. The steward handles the master's most prized possessions, but he does it all without pay. He's still a slave. Well, in Paul's eyes, he's a slave to Christ. Isn't that one of the most common ways he describes himself? As a slave of Christ? He's a steward handling his master's most prized possession. The gospel. The message of good news. Of salvation in Christ alone. And his reward. His payoff is the freedom, the freedom that he has to preach that gospel without pay. Free of charge. Look, look at verse 18. What then is my reward? 
that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So that's what Paul's proud of. His freedom in Christ means he is now free to conduct his gospel ministry in such a way as to more clearly convey the freeness of the gospel. To stress to all people that you can't earn your salvation. That leading a good life is never going to outweigh the depths of your sin. That you are saved only by receiving the free offer of salvation based on the good life and the good death that Christ Jesus accomplished for you. That's his message. And anything that might hinder that message, anything that might obscure that message or confuse that message, Paul is willing to lay aside, even if it means laying aside some of his rights. So think about those examples that I gave to you earlier. A Christian has the right to eat or drink whatever she wants. She is free from Old Testament dietary restrictions. But I can imagine a missionary serving in a predominantly Muslim context, exercising her freedom to refrain from eating pork and adopting a halal diet so that her home can now be a hospitable place for her Muslim friends to come over and to dine. Because otherwise, they wouldn't come. They wouldn't enter her home. She's denying herself a right so that she can better convey the hospitality and the warmth of Christ Jesus in the gospel. Or I can imagine a Christian refusing the right to take a fellow church member to court. This person hurt you, this person defrauded you, this person did something wrong against you. Instead of taking that person to court, instead, this Christian turns to the church to help resolve their dispute and to demonstrate for the watching world the power of the gospel of grace to reconcile two parties. And just, just in the same way, as we unholy sinners have been reconciled to a holy God by the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. If I have a chance to demonstrate that gospel through some of my own choices, well, hey, that's a good reason to lay aside a right. So Paul talked about that in an earlier chapter, about not taking fellow believers to court, instead using it as a chance to proclaim the power of the gospel. So we've seen that already. So again, friends, our rights should be respected. We can't require or, or force Christians to lay aside their rights. Please hear me. We're not forcing anyone, hey, you have to put down your right. That is not what Paul is doing here. He is, so he is not demanding that all gospel preachers refuse support, just like he did in Corinth. But he is trying to inspire all believers by personal example to be more adaptable and to voluntarily deny yourself if it's going to help advance the gospel for the sake of your gospel mission. And that leads, of course, to our third point. A Christian's mission calls for adaptability and self-control. So listen to verse 19. This is where he explains this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 
So for Paul, he used his freedom in Christ in order to make himself a servant to all for the sake of winning them all to Christ. And by making, him a servant to, uh, making himself a servant to all, what he means is that he adapted his behavior, sometimes exercising a right of his, sometimes laying that very right aside, all depending on the situation, all depending on who it is that he's actually trying to reach for Christ. So when he's among the Jews, when he's trying to win them to Christ, Paul will lay aside his right to eat whatever he wants, and he will adopt a kosher diet. If he's ministering to those under the Old Testament law, then he's going to be as one under the law. And the key word there, the key word is as or like someone who is under the law. Because he does insist in verse 20, he's not actually under the law. Because remember, he's free in Christ. He's no longer under law. But for the sake of mission in that scenario, he is willing to lay aside his right and to readopt a kosher diet. So as a Christian, Paul felt no compulsion to obey kosher law. So when he does do it, when he does eat kosher, yes, his behavior on the outside is going to look just like a Jew. The point is that he is being compelled by an entirely different motivation. The Jew eats kosher out of religious obligation. Paul does the same thing, but out of missional concern, out of evangelistic zeal. That's what's driving him. And when he's among those outside of the law, when he's among Gentiles, Paul will exercise his right to eat whatever dish is served in front of him when he's dining at a Gentile's home. He'll, he'll eat whatever they offer him. And again, the motivation is what matters when he abandons a kosher diet, it's not because he has the attitude that says, hey, 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 I'm free in Christ. Can't tell me what not to eat. I could, I could eat whatever I want. That's, that's not his attitude. Now, the reason why he doesn't keep kosher around Gentiles is to make clear that, yes, you are not saved by the law, but by the grace of God alone, the free grace of God in the gospel. That's why he does it. And he sums up, his approach beautifully at the end of verse 22. Look there. The end of verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now look, friends. If you follow Paul's example, if you adopt his approach to the very religious on either side, whether you're very Jewish or you're very Gentile, to them it looks like you're selling out. It looks like, you, it looks like contradictory, hypocritical behavior. Oh, come on, you, you act like this around these people? And then you act like that around those people? You're a chameleon. You, you don't have any principles to stand on. Well, okay, if, if you're looking only through the framework primarily concerned with protecting individual rights, then yeah, you, you probably won't respect the way that Paul handles himself in these various situations. His behavior will look contradictory. It will look as if he doesn't have any principles. But if you're looking through the framework that is primarily concerned with winning people to Christ, 
then you will recognize that there is actually an overarching, consistent principle guiding all of his actions and decisions. Paul would tell you, look, first of all, I am not changing my gospel in the slightest in order to avoid causing any offense to any group of people. No, my message doesn't change. It's the same gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. But how I deliver my message and how I carry myself when I'm doing it, it might change if it helps to advance the cause of Christ. I'm not changing my behavior around different groups of people because I'm trying to win their approval. I'm trying to win them to Christ. So I want to preach to them without unnecessary obstacles and unnecessary distractions. So look at verse 23. This is where he says it. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. So that's why he's adaptable. It's for the sake of the gospel. It all comes out of a concern for the gospel work among the people he's ministering to. So here's an example for us to consider. If you're a Christian, especially one who lives in America, you have the right to free speech, right? We have that right to free speech. You have the right to express whatever political or ideological position that you hold. If you strongly believe it, then you can say it in any social setting or you can say it on, on any social media platform. You have that right. But are the only people that you're trying to win to Christ, the kind of people who already agree with you on contentious political or ideological issues? Wouldn't it be love to lay aside your right to just freely and uncritically express your opinions in order to avoid any unnecessary obstacles to winning your friends and family to Christ? And again, I'm not saying that you should just pretend to hold certain positions or opinions in order to ingratiate yourself to a certain audience. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying we should consider Paul's example, where he was known not for his opinion of Caesar or for his views on empire, but for his zeal to win people to Christ. Does that sound like you? Does that motivation mark your life and your decisions? Operating out of this kind of ethical framework, I know, friends, is not going to be easy. You're going to have to deny yourself at times. You're going to have to hold back your impulses. You're going to have to res restrict your instincts. Because it's not about just being true to yourself. It's not about just protecting your own rights. It's about doing whatever it takes to advance the gospel and to remove any obstacles in the path of someone coming to know Jesus. That's what's most important. And that's going to take some self-control, some self-restraint. And that's why Paul ends the chapter with this imagery of an Olympian athlete. His point is that if athletes have to discipline their bodies, exercising strict self-control, self-restraint, just to win a perishable wreath that's going to wither away very soon, then how much more self-control should we apply in our mission to win people to Christ, knowing that our prize is the imperishable souls of our saved 
friends and family. How much more then should we be exercising self-restraint, laying aside our rights, denying ourselves for the sake of love and gospel? How much more? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for just a way that it's very relevant and it's very convicting. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live like the Apostle Paul in such a way where we make whatever choice needs to be made in order to not lay a stumbling block to faith for others and to advance your gospel to win more people to Christ. Help us to share his attitude, his ethical decision-making, and may you be glorified in it all. In Jesus' name, in Jesus name. amen. Yeah.